Great to, great to have you here tonight. Let's get excited, huh? Dan Kerr is here with us. We have a little smaller crowd tonight, but that's okay. Because Dan Kerr is the kind of guy, he's Pearl. And we don't just put pearls in front of anybody, you know? You got to be ready for what Dan's going to give you. I'm uh, thrilled to have him here tonight. Did uh, Caitlin or Sam, do you want to say anything to, to introduce the evening, or should I just go right into it? Okay. So, <clears throat> my friend Daniel Kerr is here to speak to us tonight on our next installment on the, uh, on the Incarnation. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things I could say about Dan. I'm, I'm very excited that he's here. Uh, it's, I'm excited for you to, to get to know somebody that's been uh, a part of my life, a very important part of my life, since I was 19 years old. Uh, Dan started at the University of Chicago as an undergraduate after growing up in Fort Scott, Kansas. And uh, ended up transferring out to the college that I was going to. We ended up rooming together the year after that. Um, I've seen a pretty amazing thing. Dan, Dan is just a very creative, free-thinking, adventurous dude. Um, among his many exploits include uh, hitchhiking up the Pacific Coast for how many days? 14 days? A week? A week? Spring break. Yeah, just kind of went. Dan uh, also, at one point, I, I recall just decided that deodorant was unnatural yep. and that lasted for two months Longer. two three months yeah. months several months yeah. um and while he was my roommate and that <laughs> I, I i conclude in contrary to dan's hypothesis no deodorant is natural and necessary um dan is a poet songwriter uh a expert on the guitar at least, um, uh, at least an expert in making you believe he's an expert on guitar and has uh, done wonderful things in his professional life and now having um, gotten that in the bag has decided to start another whole chapter in his life and really in his family's life. Um, they have recently started a school on their family farm that is meant to be a boarding school. I'm sure he'll tell you more about that, but uh, a boarding school, a working farm, and something that is very much bound up with the idea of, uh, of the incarnation, that the soil and the sky and the air and the things that, that really matter are the means that God chooses to enter and, and to move us. Uh, Dan currently resides in Fort Scott with his wife, Katie, and their children, um, Nora Margaret, Gerald Francis II, named after his father, God rest his soul. The uh, third, which is my goddaughter, Fiona Josephine. Then Eileen, is it Mara? Mara. Not Omera, Mara. And then their uh, most recent child, uh, uh, Maeve. Maeve Evangeline. Maeve Evangeline. Can you believe that name? Beautiful name. I love those names. My favorite is, is Fiona. Um, they're, they're all darling children, and they run about the farm with the cows and the chickens and the geese and the cats and the pigs and the mud and the blood and the beer and everything else. So without further ado, I want to uh, give a great welcome and your full attention to uh, Mr. Dan Kerr. Check one, two. Can you hear me? Great. Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, it's wonderful to see you here in your element See, I haven't been here before, and really that's why I agreed to do this tonight, because 
Being an Irishman, I am motivated primarily by a sense of guilt. And I feel guilty that I haven't been up here to see Father. You've been here how long? Four years. Yeah, just four years. I'm only two hours away. I've never even been here. I'm a good friend. <laughs> but it's good to see you, Father. And it looks like you're building uh, something pretty, pretty neat here. And I wouldn't expect any less. Um, so Father told me that the topic is um, <clears throat> the topic is the incarnation. And I, the incarnation, that's the topic. And I thought, uh, that doesn't exactly narrow it down. Uh, the thing about the incarnation is that you can talk about anything. And that's, that's, uh, that's the good, I mean, in some ways, that's the good, the good side. The bad side also is that you can talk about anything, and I can talk about anything, and I imagine I will talk about anything. And as I was reviewing my notes earlier today, I realized I was going to actually attempt to talk about everything, basically from the fall of Lucifer down to how to milk a cow, <laughs> and then actually everything in between. I was going to try to cram that in. We have about 20 minutes. Let's see what we can do. Um, so everybody, I just want to get a sense of who's here. So we have, um, everyone's a student? Is that fair? Except our focus ministers? Who's, who are our focus guys and gals? We have three? Okay. Everybody else, are y'all are students? Okay. Is there a, is it, are you all undergraduates? Is there a graduate program here at Emporia State? Okay, cool. What are you studying? Wow, great. Okay. And, and the undergrads, uh, what are some of the majors out there? I want to get a feel for our crowd. Nursing? Wonderful. Elementary education. That's great. Business. What else? Recreation. Right on, man. That's my speed, brother. Yeah. I like it. Um, any others? Information systems. What does that mean? No, I'm serious. You make the computer go. All right, very good. I like it. Okay, good, good. Okay, I feel like I, I kind of have a have a feel for for where we're at here. You know what? I want to I want to start with the prayer. I meant to start with the prayer. So let, before I get into this, um, I'm going to go ahead and say this prayer that was uh, written by St. Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, origin of all being, graciously let a ray of your light penetrate the darkness of our understanding. Take from us the double darkness in which we have been born, of obscurity of sin and ignorance. Give us a keen understanding, a retentive memory, and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally. Grant us the talent of being exact in our explanations and the ability to express ourselves with thoroughness and charm. Point out the beginning, direct the progress, and help in the completion. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so 
quick roadmap of uh, what I hope to uh, cover here. Um, and really, uh, I'm not a speaker. This isn't something I do. I've been in business. Um, I've, I've had a, a, a farm for about a decade, and I'm, I'm currently working on um, you know, getting, getting a, a new school off the ground. Um, this is not something I, I typically do. It's not really in my comfort zone. Um, so it, it, I look forward more than anything to getting to the end uh, so that we can kind of have a conversation and, 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 and just be a little bit more informal. I feel like when I do this, I tend to get kind of didactic and, and preachy. And, um, and, and it, that just kind of makes me a little bit uh, uncomfortable. But at any rate, here's what I'm hoping we can cover uh, in the next, you know, 20 minutes or so. Um, the first thing I want to do, I want to talk about a heresy and what I think is kind of the perennial heresy which has plagued not just mankind but even the angels uh, from the get-go. I want to talk then about how the incarnation answers or holds the answer to that heresy. Um, and then I want to talk about how that answer that the incarnation provides gives us a framework for answering just about every other question there is, um, including a proper development of man, and specifically with respect to this talk, um, what true education looks like, what education is, what the purpose of education is. And then finally, I want to get just a, uh, a little specific and, and share with you about um, the school that I started, St. Martin's Academy in, uh, in Fort Scott, and how we approach things and how our approach is an incarnational approach uh, to education. Okay, so let's start at the top, from the beginning. Father mentioned I went to um, the University of, of Chicago, and that's true. I spent about <clears throat> five minutes there before moving on to Thomas Aquinas College, uh, where I met Father. Uh, probably the most valuable thing that I learned at UChicago um, was how not to start a paper. And I think the same could be said about how not to start a talk. My go-to, my ace in the hole when I was in high school for starting a paper was to start this way. Since the dawn of man, blah, 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 blah. Since the dawn of man. And um, I just thought that was reasonable. Why don't we just start at the beginning? You know, it's an intro. Let's just, let's just start from the top and work our way down from there. Uh, it turns out that's not really not that, all that helpful. Um, but in this case, I think we can start at the beginning. So in the beginning, we have the fall. And I don't mean Adam and Eve. I mean the first fall, which is... Uh, the fall of Lucifer and, and the other angels that, that fell with him. <clears throat> what happened there? What was going on? Um, Lucifer declared, non serviam, I will not serve, right? And we're told, and I think it's more substantial than just pious legend, I think um, there's good 
uh, authority and reason to believe that one of the reasons that Lucifer said that he would not serve is because he had an inkling of the Incarnation. Right? Have you heard that before? Lucifer was scandalized by the prospect, and, and, and it seems to me he didn't have a full grasp of what was going to happen, but he had some inkling, some, under, some, some, some notion that he would have to bow down before a material thing. And that was beyond that was that that was beyond the limit for him. He couldn't accept that. Non serviam, I will not serve. This gets to the heart of what I would call the perennial heresy, which is which ma has manifested itself in a number of different ways and, and, and still to and still rears its head today. Um, it's, it's the idea that the spirit and the flesh are opposed, that the flesh is inferior, that, it, that moreover it's, it's, it's evil, it's a drag, it drags the spirit down, okay? And this heresy goes by a number of different names. Gnosticism, okay? Has anyone heard of Gnosticism? It, it's, it, it, it's, it's a, basically, it's, it's an age-old heresy. Father, can I give this to you? I can't seem to figure out how to work my phone. It keeps wanting to go off. If you can just throw it away or something. Um, Gnosticism. Uh, and and this, this is a human heresy here. This is, again, the idea that we're somehow trapped in a body and the body is weighing us down. And if we could just get free of this, this in, kind of this, we're in a prison in our own body, if we could get free of this, if we could be liberated from it, that, that, that is really the ultimate goal because the spirit is noble and the flesh is ignoble. Um, it, goes, it goes by a number of other names, Manichaeism, Albigensianism, Calvinism, Puritanism, um, Jansenism. It, 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 this, this heresy has, has just occurred again and again and again. And I, I wonder if, like the fall, which left a mark, and a permanent mark on human nature, if the first fall somehow made a wound of its own in, 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 the, in the created world, uh, in the world that God made, and has given us this kind of this propensity to think of the flesh, to think of material things as being evil and somehow inferior to the spirit. Now then, um, I would suggest that the incarnation particularly holds the key to understanding the right relationship 
between uh, spirit and matter, right? Spirit and the flesh. This was hotly contested, of course. Um, the matter of Jesus' um, identity, his true identity, was hotly contested. Uh, some wanted to deny that Christ was fully divine. Others wanted to, to deny that Christ was fully human. The Arian heresy wanted to suggest that Christ was not consubstantial, right, that's part of the creed now, was not consubstantial with the Father. He was somehow created by the Father. Um, there were, there were the, the nature of Christ and, and the nature of his humanity and his divinity was hotly contested for hundreds of years and still, frankly, to this day. Um, and I think the reason is because we really struggle to, to think that the creator of the universe could become a little baby in a manger. That is just a hard pill to swallow. It just doesn't quite, it, it, it can be difficult to, to wrap your mind around it. It's a mystery. And I think that a lot of times we respond to mystery <laughs> by trying to explain it away and trying to make it a more comfortable explanation. The fact is, uh, the, uh, the fact that God is both fully human and fully divine is exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, for us to fully grasp. I would say impossible. We can talk about it. We can say things about it. We can talk about... Um, the hypostatic union. Um, but do we fully understand that? Um, and and I, think, I think what happens is we want, we want a comfortable way of, of conceiving things and talking about things, and so we come up, up with explanations that are a little easier to understand. Like, God created Christ. Christ isn't actually fully God, or Christ isn't fully man. Um, because the union of those two things fully is just, that's difficult for us. Um, but the incarnation, um, the, the fact that Christ is both fully human and fully divine, really, I think, is, is kind of the key to understanding this, this tension that exists between uh, body and soul, um, nature and grace, work and prayer, um, the physical and the theoretical. The incarnation gives us, I think, a framework um, to understand how, how, how those things are, how those things relate to one another. Um, and we're, we're going to come back to this later. I also think it's interesting to note that the incarnation um, was, among other things, um, I think a pedagogical choice. Pedagogy just refers to um, uh, sort of the, the 
the study, the artful science of teaching, right? Um, God revealed himself. I mean, we talk about revelation, right? We talk about revelation. We talk about scripture being part of God's revelation. God never reveals himself more fully than in the incarnation, of course. And this was a pedagogical decision, I think, that God made. Um, he, the creator of the universe, became a human being, became a little baby. Um, he, wasn't, he didn't just descend out, out of the sky, perfectly formed at, you know, 21 years old, ready to rock and roll. He was a little baby, vulnerable little baby, um, born in a, in a hay crib uh, in, in Bethlehem to, a poor, to poor parents. You know, his father was a carpenter. Um, and I, I, think it's worth, I think it's worth noting those things. I think it's worth noting that Christ wasn't a respected scribe or Pharisee or Sadducee. Those were the, the equivalent of the talking heads, uh, the political commentators, the, the academics, the elites of the society that he was born into. Um, his dad was a carpenter. I, I mean, I, I just, I find that to be absolutely remarkable and wonderful. He chose, who did he choose to help him? Uh, did he choose folks who were rich, intelligent, um, well, well connected? No. He chose some fishermen who didn't even appear to be very good fishermen. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, he, cho he chose a tent maker. You know, it's just, it's, it, I think it's worth, it's worth thinking about those things. It's worth, it's worth thinking about the pedagogical approach that, that God and that, that God took in the incarnation and that Christ shows in his life. How does he teach? He teaches through parable, which are stories. He doesn't use abstract principles. He's, he's not, um, he's not like Plato or Aristotle, um, you know, using these fairly abstruse, abstract, you know, methods of, of kind of teaching and getting to the heart of things. He uses simple stories. Mostly, most of them are agricultural, uh, simple stories. Um, so, what does this, <clears throat> what does any of this have to do with, um, with education and, and, and with, a, with a boarding school for boys in, in southeast Kansas? Um, I guess what I would want to suggest here is that we should indeed be attentive as we consider what is education and what are the, um, what are the best ways to um, 
Yeah, first of all, what is education? What is man? What, what is man uh, meant for? Where does he come from? Who is he? Where is he going? These questions, um, I think we should be very attentive to the incarnation in considering uh, the answers to those questions. Um, and I would suggest that we try to take an incarnational approach to education. Our education through divine revelation uh, came through the Word, the Word incarnate. Um, so what does an incarnational approach to education look like? And, and, and I hope that that's what we can talk about you know, together here and it's not me just kind of you know, blabbing. Um, has anyone read the book Hard Times by Charles Dickens? That's, I haven't either, but it's not going to prevent me from talking about it. So at the beginning of Hard Times, I've read this part at least. Hey, have you read it? No, it's on the show. Okay. I think it's, I think it's um, an abridged version. Fair enough. I haven't read it. But I know that at the beginning, there is a great, there's a great scene. There is a professor. His name is Professor Gradgrind. Okay? And he is, there's, uh, he, he is um, leading a class. And a new student comes in. Uh, a little girl. And Professor Gradgrind asks her her name. She gives her name. Asks her... Uh, who her father is and what he does, and she tells him that he breaks horses. He works with horses. He's a horse doctor, uh, probably a farrier, and he breaks horses. He's a, he's a, he's a horseman. Professor Gradgrind says, define a horse. And she's just kind of stammering. She doesn't know how to define a horse. He quickly goes to another student uh, and says, you know, Johnny, what's the definition of a horse? Johnny stands up and in, you know, fine kind of military fashion, spouts out the perfect definition of a horse. You know, quadruped, ruminant, 42 teeth, blah, 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 blah gives this precise, bookish definition of a horse. Now, which of those two kids knew what a horse was? Do you think it was Johnny who had uh, a formula memorized? Or do you think it was the little girl who grew up with horses? Who actually knew what a horse was? Moreover, who cared? Who actually may have loved horses. I would contend it was the little girl. Right? I think that's, that's getting somewhat in the direction of what we mean by an incarnational approach to education. We have to, we have to um, move beyond the books and move beyond 
uh, abstract statements uh, about things and formulas. And we actually have to experience reality itself. Um, I remember being at the University of Dallas where I uh, finished up. I was an English major. And I remember it was a senior advanced class in literary criticism. <clears throat> and we were having a conversation about some kind of, it, it, there was something we were reading, I don't know what it was, Heart of Darkness by Conrad or something like that. And we're 30 minutes into this conversation and we are so many layers removed from reality in this conversation, uh, it was almost absurd. Um, and, and, and it suddenly dawned on me that we were, having this kind of meta conversation. We were talking about talking. We were, it was just, uh, it really finally didn't have anything to do with reality. And that I think is a real danger that can befall us, especially in, in academia and in higher education, is that we lose sight of the fact that finally at the end of the day, whatever, whatever we have in these books, and this kind of this sort of transfer of knowledge that can be standardized and and uh, measured in different ways. That's not as important as actually experiencing reality in the raw, right? So what we try to do um, and what our model at St. Martin's Academy is is um, to give to give it's it's first of all it's an all boys boarding school. Um, so the boys are with us 24-7. Um, uh, it's a residential school, so, so they, they live there uh, in community. Um, and, you know, our approach is to, wherever possible, make uh, the subjects, be it natural history, math, literature, uh, theology, um, music, whatever it is, to ground those things in a material and sense experience. Okay, so for example, I teach natural history. Um, and we, our class is literally held in the woods, in a tree house. <laughs> and and that's by design. The boys have to walk about a quarter of a mile through a field with cattle and sheep, cross a little narrow semi-treacherous bridge, footbridge, uh, across a creek, and then they meet me in the treehouse. Um, they have a sit spot, which every week they go to their sit spot. It's a little place that's their own, that's carved out, and they just sit there and observe quietly. Um, and what's neat is that they have begun to develop some habits of attentiveness. They're beginning to actually kind of go outside of their own mind and to see things. Um, I know it sounds like the most simple thing in the world, but it's, it's actually not. To, to develop some basic powers of observation and attentiveness is really asking a lot. Of, of, of kids these days. Kids these days, my gosh, I sound old. Um, 
So they're starting to develop relationships with their surroundings. For example, they're starting to take a real interest in the trees that are around them. They want to know the names of the trees. When you know the name of something, you begin to have a relationship with it. And so they're learning that this is a sycamore tree. This is an oak tree. And not just an oak tree, it's a white oak. And not just a white oak, it's a chinkapin oak. Um, this is a red bud. And they're experiencing these things. Their senses are immersed in direct contact with God's created world. And uh, their hearts are beginning to stir just a little bit. I've only had these guys for two, two months in this class, and I can already see it. Um, education is finally, and I'm making some big uh, assumptions about education and what I think it is. And again, I, I hope that's something we can talk about here in a few minutes. Um, but education, I think, is much less a matter of the mind, and I think it's much more an affair of the heart, especially um, for, did you say you're in elementary education? Yeah, especially at a young, kind of tender age. I think it's, I think it's about firing up the imagination, developing attentiveness, uh, developing wonder. I mean, wonder, wonder really is kind of the key um, to it. It, do, it doesn't matter, it doesn't, just this kind of transfer of knowledge and the ability to, to regurgitate that and, and to score well on, on a test. I, un, I do understand the practical considerations there and we, we you know, obviously we, we need jobs and, and, and that's important. Um, but I think a true education can do those things, can, can help you to live a good life uh, in which you provide for your family or whatever your vocation looks like and to, and to perform with excellence in that vocation. But I do think a, 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 a true education is one that is primarily an affair of the heart. And when Christ became a human being, and when he spoke in parables and his whole approach to engaging his creation speaks to our heart, right? Because our heart is the seat of our will. That's, where, that's what drives us to make decisions, to become virtuous, to try to do better, to put away the old man and put away sin. Uh, we can we can know we can know as much as we want to know, but if our wills haven't been formed, if our wills are not strong, um, we're going to struggle, uh, and and our very salvation is at stake. And the key, the key then to a strong will begins with the imagination, and the imagination is rooted in the senses. Um, it's rooted, I mean, the, when we think about it, the imagination, um, what, what's in our imagination? It's just, it's just a composite of all the things that have been taken in through our senses, right? What we've seen, what we've smelled, what we've touched, right? 
we can fathom new things. We can imagine new things. A purple people eater, you know, one-eyed, what is the thing? Flying purple people eater. We can, not because we've seen what, not because we've seen that, but because we can put those elements together because we have an experience of purple and something, and eating and a horn, you know what I mean? So, you know, that's how our imagination works, but it builds on our senses. And so we have to immerse, I think education done, you know, done well, immerses one one's senses in real things. Um, so, I, I've told you a little bit about the natural history class. Um, another huge element uh, of, of how we approach things at St. Martin's is um, the boys work on a farm. They're in constant contact with animals. Um, they're literally learning how to milk cows right now. We have three milk cows, and they're out there hand-milking these milk cows. Uh, we've castrated pigs. We've butchered chickens. Um, we've put up hay. Um, I mean, it's, it's, and, and it's, it's, I think, been a, a really wonderful experience for them uh, to do that. I think there's a lot more to say about the element of work and how that plays into things, but I think I've probably already gone long enough. So I will... I will cut it off there, um, and um, defer to any questions.